Chapter Twenty Four of Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Ox Team Days on the Oregon Trail by Ezra Meeker and Howard Driggs. Chapter Twenty Four, on the Overland Trail again. It was the 14th of March when I drove out of the Dalles to make the long overland journey. By rail it is 1734 miles from the Dalles to Omaha, where our work of marking the old trail was to end. By wagon road the distance is greater, but not much greater, probably 1800 miles. The load was very heavy, and so were the roads. With a team untrained to the road, and one of the oxen unbroken, with no experienced ox driver to assist me, and the grades heavy, small wonder if a feeling of depression crept over me. On some long hills we could move only a few rods at a time, and on level roads, with the least warm sun, the unbroken ox would poke out his tongue. We were passing now through the great farming district of eastern Oregon. The desert over which we had dragged ourselves in those long-ago days had been largely turned into great wheat-fields. As we drew into camp one night, a young man approached, driving eight harnessed horses. He told me that he had harrowed in thirty-five acres of wheat that day, and that it was just a common day's work to plough seven acres of land. I recalled my boyhood days when father spoke approvingly if I ploughed two acres a day, and when to harrow ten acres was the biggest kind of a day's work. I also recalled the time when we cut the wheat with a sickle, or maybe with a hand-cradle, and threshed it out with horses on the barn floor. Sometimes we had a fanning mill, and how it would make our arms ache to turn the crank. At other times, if a stiff breeze sprang up, the wheat and chaff would be shaken loose and the chaff would be blown away. If all other means failed, two stout arms at either end of a blanket or a sheet would move the sheet as a fan to clean the wheat. Now we see the great combination harvester garner thirty acres a day, and thresh it as well, and sack it ready for the mill or warehouse. There is no shocking, no stacking or housing. All in one operation, the grain is made ready for market. As we journeyed eastward, the Blue Mountains came into distant view. Half a day's brisk travel brought us well up toward the snow line. The country became less broken, the soil seemed better, the rainfall had been greater. We began to see red barns and comfortable farmhouses, still set wide apart, though, for the farms are large. In the Walla Walla Valley the scene is different. Smaller farms are the rule, and orchards are to be seen everywhere. We now pass the historic spot where the Whitman Massacre occurred in 1847. Soon afterward we were in camp in the very heart of the thriving city of Walla Walla. It was near here that I had met my father when I crossed by the Natchez Pass Trail in 1854. Another day's travel brought us to Pendleton, Oregon. Here the commercial club took hold with a will and provided funds for a stone monument. On the last day of March it was dedicated with appropriate ceremonies. That evening I drove out to the Indian school in a fierce rainstorm to talk to the teachers and pupils about the Oregon Trail. A night in the wagon without fire and with only a scant supper sent my spirits down to zero. Nor did they rise when I learned next morning that the snow had fallen eighteen inches deep in the mountains. However, with this news came a warm invitation from the school authorities to use a room they had allotted to us, with a stove, 
and to help ourselves to fuel. That cheered us up greatly. There was doubt whether we could cross the Blue Mountains in all this snow. I decided to investigate, so I took the train. About midnight I was landed in the snow at Meacham, with no visible light in the hotel and no track beaten to it. Morning confirmed the report of the storm. Twenty inches of snow had fallen in the mountains. An old mountaineer told me, Yes, it is possible to cross, but I warn you it will be a hard job. It was at once arranged that the second morning thereafter his team should leave Meacham on the way to meet me. But what about a monument, Mr. Burns? I said. Meacham is a historic place, with Lee's encampment in sight. It was in 1834 that the Reverend Jason Lee had crossed the continent with Weiss's second expedition. We have no money, came the quick reply, but we've got plenty of muscle. Send us a stone, and I'll warrant you the foundation will be built and the monument put in place. A belated train gave opportunity to return at once to Pendleton, where an appeal for aid to provide an inscribed stone for Meacham was responded to with alacrity. The stone was ordered, and a sound night's sleep followed. I quote from my journal, Camp Number 31, April 4, 1906. We are now on the snow line of Blue Mountains, 8 p.m., and am writing this by our first really out-of-doors campfire, under the spreading boughs of a friendly pine tree. We estimate we have driven twelve miles, started from the school at 7 a.m., the first three or four miles over a beautiful farming country. Then we began climbing the foothills, up, 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 four miles, reaching first snow at three o'clock. True to promise, the mountaineer's team met us on the way to Meacham, but not till we had reached the snow. We were axle-deep in it and had the shovel to use to clear the way when Burns came upon us. By night we were safely encamped at Meacham, and the cheering news that the monument had arrived and could be dedicated the next day. The summit of the mountain had not been reached, and the worst tug lay ahead of us. But casting thoughts of this from mind, all hands turned to the monument, which by eleven o'clock was in place. Twist and Dave stood near it, hitched up, and ready for the start as soon as the order was given. Everybody in town was there, the little school coming in a body. After the speech we moved on to battle with the snow, and finally won our way over the summit. The sunshine that was let into our hearts at Le Grand was also refreshing. Yes, we will have a monument, the people responded, and they got one, too, dedicating it while I tarried. We had taken with us an inscribed stone to set up an intersection near the mouth of Lad's Canyon, eight miles out of Le Grand. The school nearby came in a body. The children sang, Columbia, the gem of the ocean, after which I talked to the assemblage for a few moments, and the exercises closed with all singing America. Each child brought a stone and cast it upon the pile surrounding the base of the monument. The citizens of Baker City lent a willing ear to the suggestion to erect a monument on the high school grounds, although the trail is six miles off to the north, and a fine granite shaft was provided for the high school grounds and was dedicated. A marker was set on the trail. Eight hundred school children contributed an aggregate of sixty dollars to place a children's bronze tablet on this shaft. Two thousand people participated in the ceremony of dedication. News of these events was now beginning to pass along the line ahead. As a result, the citizens in other places began to take hold of the work with a will. Old Mount Pleasant, Durkee, Huntington, and Vale were other Oregon towns that followed the good lead and erected monuments to mark the old trail. 
A most gratifying feature of the work was the hearty participation in it of the school children. End of chapter 24